0: Welcome to another edition of ABI Podcast, which features conversations with prominent figures in the bankruptcy world to discuss topics of interest to our members. I'm Juliette Moringello, resident scholar at the American Bankruptcy Institute. I am pleased to welcome as my guest today, Professor Stephen Lubin of Seton Hall University School of Law. Today, Professor Lubin and I are going to discuss a very timely question, the question of whether Chapter 11 is an adequate mechanism to deal with the failure of systemically significant financial institutions. There are currently proposals before Congress to develop an alternative system to deal with the failure of these institutions. Professor Lubin has written extensively on this subject and he has some very interesting thoughts on the use of Chapter 11 to deal with these financial firms. Um, Stephen, in December, the House of Representatives passed the Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, which includes a procedure that is modeled on FDIC Resolution Authority to deal with the failure of systemically significant financial institutions. Why does the failure of large financial institutions pose problems for bankruptcy law.
1: Uh, I'm not sure that it does, or I, at least I'm not sure that it presents as many problems as uh, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury seem to think it does. Um, they, they're drawn to an FDIC model, probably because that's what they're most familiar with, but it seems to me that that is not necessarily the correct analogy. I mean, the FDIC's well, its primary concern is, first of all, just also concerned with saving its customers or, or the bank's customers from incur- incurring any losses. I'm not sure we're re- really worried about that in a large financial institution. Instead, it might be actually better to uh, show bondholders and shareholders
0: Have uh, argued uh, many times in the past. You've written in the past that um, there there should be um, uh, certain elements in any structure to deal with the failure of systemically significant financial institutions. Um, even if Chapter 11 of the bankruptcy code is that structure, um, what? should be included or what already is in chapter 11 that would make it um, the appropriate mechanism for dealing with failure uh, failure of these companies
1: well I think most importantly chapter 11 the chapter 11 system is a pre-existing structure that has a lot of experience with dealing with financial failure and the collapse of a company uh, whereas you know the house proposal, is to create an entirely new system that will have probably no experience and won't get a lot of experience with failure because
0: it's not every day, right, that a large financial
1: institution is going to fail. So you're basically setting up a parallel structure that will almost never be used, won't have that kind of institutional knowledge that the Chapter 11 system does. I think, you know, particularly the bankruptcy courts in New York and Delaware. do need to make some accommodations for the differences between you know, regular firms on the one hand and financial firms on the other hand. Um, financial firms, for example, are much more dependent on liquidity, um, so you really need a whole bunch of financing when you go into the bankruptcy case, and I think we have to face up to the reality that if the financial firm is sufficiently large, in a lot of cases, that financing is going to have to come out the Federal Reserve or the Treasury or somebody like that that has the kind of assets that you know nobody else has.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, you have uh, and just following up on on this, um, you've suggested that chapter 11, with some modifications, can handle systemically significant um, financial companies. Um, and you you've noted um, before that opposition to chapter 11, is based on an outdated view of chapter 11. What is that view of chapter 11 um, that you think gives some people pause in using chapter 11 to deal with these companies?
1: Well I think uh, particularly outside of the bankruptcy community and especially in the you know the, the banking regulatory community, bankruptcy and chapter 11 is still viewed as something that you try to avoid at all possible cost. Um, Their approach to it has traditionally been to try to get a safe harbor provision enacted in the bankruptcy code, that is, an exemption enacted in the bankruptcy code, and then basically ignore the bankruptcy code from there on out. And I think that is kind of rooted in this conception that Chapter 11 is still like it was, you know, back when Eastern Airlines was lingering in bankruptcy for years, Um, and then, you know, finally liquidating at the end of that process. Um, I don't think anybody views that case as a great success, Mm. but... Chapter 11 has really moved on since then, and, you know, GM, Chrysler, even the Lehman Brothers sales show that the courts can, you know, move quickly when necessary, mm-hmm. um, and they can also take account of the outside effects of their case uh, when considering uh, a Chapter 11 case. I mean, the Lehman Brothers court was quite explicitly.
0: point, because one um, uh, thing that's often brought up about resolution authority is that it would be quicker than Chapter 11. Why is speed so desirable in these cases?
1: Well, speed is desirable just because uncertainty is undesirable for the financial markets. Um, the, the All these financial firms are so interconnected that the longer that they don't exactly is going to happen. Um, the more uncertainty and the more turmoil that'll develop in the market. So you need you need to kind of reach a resolution, you know, quickly to kind of nip that in the bud before it gets, you know, into a full blown panic.
0: And could you elaborate a little bit more on the idea of interconnectedness? Um, one thing that you that we all read about is the fact that because these financial institutions are so interconnected, uh, we need, you know, either a speedy Chapter 11 or resolution authority. Um, what does it mean to say what? What? Why? What is interconnectedness, and, and why does it matter?
1: Well, unlike other in other industries, you have a lot of sort of what I call bilateral connections between financial firms. Um, you know, General Motors and Ford don't really interact with each other mm-hmm. except as competitors. They don't have contracts with each other back and forth. But as we saw with AIG, um, the large financial institutions do. AIG had a whole bunch of contracts with Goldman Sachs, for mm-hmm. example. Um, and so there's kind of a, a bilateral relationship that doesn't exist in, the, in other industries because so many of these, uh, these parties are just sort of trading with, with each other and entering into derivative contracts with each other. Um, So there's a kind of uh, a relationship among equal-tier firms that doesn't Mm. exist in other industries.
0: Okay, great. Um, Your support of Chapter 11 to deal with the failure of large financial firms is conditioned on changes being made to Chapter 11. And one of the major changes you support... Um, is the repeal of the bankruptcy codes safe harbors for derivatives um, first I, I'd like to ask you what these provisions are and why they're in the code in the first place
1: well they they've kind of incrementally been added to the bankruptcy code although there was a huge push in 2005 to really expand them so um, but now the entire derivatives market is essentially uh, exempted from the bankruptcy code they're they're exempted from the bankruptcy code in, in a few ways. First of all, uh, set-off isn't subject to the automatic se- automatic stay, um, so the parties can just cancel out contracts. If you have a bunch of contracts with Goldman Sachs, they can do what they call n- close-out netting, which is basically to terminate them all and and set off the, the resulting claims. That kind of illustrates the other key way in which they're exempted from the bankruptcy code, mm-hmm. the Ipso- The third big thing that I would highlight is, is avoidance actions. Um, derivatives are not subject to preference or fraudulent transfer actions. Um, so even if you have a non-ordinary course termination of a derivative contract, and you know you grab all the collateral that's associated with that two days before bankruptcy, you can't bring an action under five forty-seven to get that back.
0: And and why were these provisions added to the code over the years?
1: Uh, well there was a general feeling or at least an argument from the financial community that it was necessary to um, basically to allow the closeout netting to happen that is the termination of all these mm-hmm. contracts upon bankruptcy to avoid the risk of uncertainty again to to the financial markets I guess the problem with that is, is that they didn't really consider the countervailing risk of these these close-up provisions create, namely, all the dislocation that happens in the derivatives markets when you have everybody closing out all their positions with Lehman Brothers and
0: mm-hmm. then immediately
1: running to jump into new new positions to recreate the trades that they used to have with Lehman Brothers. Um, you know, this is, a, in addition to the, to the sort of turmoil in the derivatives market that was created by Lehman itself, mm-hmm. there was this sort of collateral turmoil created by everybody else running around to recreate all their positions, arguably that's probably even worse than if we just allowed the the contracts to stay in place and be sold just like the broker-dealer assets were quickly sold to Barclays and Lehman, you know, how much money could could have been saved and how much value could have been saved if Lehman's derivative portfolio had remained intact and had been sold to Goldman or somebody else who could have taken it
0: on. So you don't think that these safe harbor provisions are necessary really to avoid uncertainty in the markets?
1: Uh, no, I, I don't believe that they're necessary. At the very least, they're, they're extremely overbroad. I mean, I think there are some legitimate concerns in the derivatives market about the interaction of bankruptcy and derivatives, um, Section 365, you know, the assumption and rejection provision is really not designed to deal with a a kind of contract that changes in value as quickly as a derivative contract Mm -hmm. can. Mm -hmm. Um, And similarly, the adequate protection rules in the bankruptcy code don't really, I think, contemplate a situation where a party might almost have to file an adequate protection motion every day Mm. because the the values change so rapidly. So I think the Chapter 11 could benefit from some updating to reflect those legitimate concerns, but you don't need the safe harbors to address those.
0: Okay, that's great. Um, so let's follow up on that. What are the changes to Chapter 11 that you would recommend?
1: Well, I'm actually, I am actually happen to be right in the midst of working on a paper on, the, uh, on this very point, but one thing I've been suggesting is, is that maybe we need to allow
0: Great.
1: Um, Thanks. Basi- basically, in a derivative contract, mo- the parties often have what they call mark to market collateral, which basically mm-hmm. means that um, whichever party is To reflect the new value of the contract so that you've got to, you know, keep, got to keep the same amount of uh, security interest, basically. You're adjusting the, the size of a collateral pool to reflect your exposure on the contract. And one thing to uh, possibly consider would be to allow that to continue, those balances to continue to float up and down. Post-petition, at least, More okay. dynamic way that could reflect the reality that derivative contracts do change in value pretty pretty rapidly. Mm-hmm.
0: Any other changes to Chapter Eleven that you think would be um, desirable?
1: Well, I, I, I do think you need to think about um, the ways in which financial institutions are different uh, from regular firms. We also need to think about whether it might not be better to, at least with regard to these firms, have an ability to pull in enterpri- other parts of the enterprise that would normally not be allowed in Chapter Eleven, and mm-hmm. thinking about, like insurance companies or even banks. Um, you know that would have would have been one of the tricks about filing an AIG Chapter Eleven case. Um, the AIG itself, the New York part of it, could have gone into bankruptcy. But apparently, most of its trading was actually happening in London, mm-hmm. and then we have, of course, all the insurance companies that are not even subject to the federal bankruptcy code and would have been subject to, you know, various state proceedings that totally outside of the federal system. It, it might make some sense to, at least with regard to the largest of financial firms, pull the whole enterprise in front of a single, a single judge.
0: Oh, okay. Um. And and when we're while we're on the topic of judges, uh, there's been some talk of creating a special bankruptcy court to handle the cases of large complex financial institutions. Um, is that an idea you support? And what are some of the important issues involved in creating such a court?
1: You know, I'm not. I don't have a strong opinion one way or another. I mean, one advantage of creating a special court is you could then potentially cherry pick the kind of the best judges from all around the country and and have them serve on this court, uh, which might give some people some degree of comfort. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, you know, I think uh, Judge Peck and Lehman Brothers showed that, you know, at least uh, in these jurisdictions where they're pretty used to large Chapter 11 cases anyway, he he seemed to have gotten up to speed on Lehman Brothers pretty fast
0: Mm -hmm. um, with
1: regard to the case, which may suggest that, even that, you know, special court concept is not necessary.
0: Okay. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add um, about uh, using Chapter 11 to um, deal with the failure of uh, large, complex financial institutions?
1: Well, you know, I think my, my broader concern is just the um, d- degree to which this has been a process or a, a reform uh, process that has been driven largely by the financial community, and mm-hmm. with less input from people who have a lot of experience dealing with failed firms, namely the Chapter Eleven community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those, those two areas of law are too often separate.
0: that's right, and, and of course one of the, the reasons that you often hear for resolution authority is that the Lehman bankruptcy brought down the financial system, but it wasn't really the Lehman bankruptcy filing, was it?
1: No, I, I, I mean, that's really confusing the procedure with the underlying reality. Mm-hmm. Even if we, we repealed the entire... Real problem was one of the failure of Lehman Brothers. Obviously, that was a failure of perhaps regulation, also a failure of risk management on Lehman's part. Um, but you know, Chapter 11 wasn't really the cause of that problem. There's also, I mean, somewhat related to the, the comment you mentioned. There's often this sort of idea that you either you have to have a bailout like AIG, mm-hmm. or you have, or you have to face uh, Lehman-style bankruptcy. Well. Lehman-style bankruptcy isn't the only alternative. Um, from what we read in the press, it sounds as though the bankruptcy attorneys in Lehman were perhaps not let in on, on the joke until the petition day. <laughs> um, obviously, the Lehman bankruptcy might have gone a lot smoother if Weil Gottschall had been called, you know, a week sure. in advance or something like this. It mm-hmm. some time to prepare.
0: Great. Yes, that, uh, that's right. I mean, that, that is one of the concerns you often hear. And that with resolution authority, of, of course, the, the regulators would be looking at, at the institution uh, before, before the actual you know, equivalent to the bankruptcy filing. So um, that, right. that is an important point on, on getting up to speed. But of course, that, that could be dealt with in a, in a Chapter 11 uh, structure. Um, Well, thank you so much again for joining me, Stephen. Um, I've enjoyed talking to you, and I'm sure that the ABI members will enjoy listening to this conversation. From the ABI, this is Juliette Morangello. Thank you for listening.